Thank you so much, my friend and colleague. Uh, after that introduction, I'm a little afraid to start talking, to be quite frank. I, uh, it's, it's so nice to have a friend in the house, and I certainly appreciate that, uh, Your Honor, Mary Ellen Griffith. It's also so very nice to be on the, on the dais with, with uh, uh, Judge uh, William Sadler from, from law school. We really appreciate that opportunity. It's good to be here with you on this wonderful January day. Uh, before I start, I just wanted to, to give a couple of uh, uh, comments about the occasion, and uh, I'm very honored to be here. It is, it is my great pleasure. Uh, it's also my great pleasure to be in the company of my lovely wife. I got to say, somebody can say, man, that you can clap or something. <laughs> uh, the accomplished uh, Joy uh, Morris uh, Fryson. And somehow, if I haven't done anything else right in this life, I have been able to fool this lovely lady for 42 years. <laughs> so uh, we're excited. I mean, we're getting ready to have our first granddaughter here in about a month and a half. And uh, y'all clap for that. Huh? <laughs> <We're talking> about... <laughs> um, but it's, it's just so wonderful to be here on this in this historic uh, college that has meant so much to Southern West Virginia and to the uh, African American community throughout the, the, the world. When it was found uh, late last evening, I got a, a uh, I received a, an email from Brenda Pruitt, and uh, Mrs. Pruitt is the is the extension agent for West Virginia University, and she said, well, you know, I really should have told you before, but unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to be there. But if at all possible, I, I think that you should recognize Mrs. Pearl uh, Hamby for her work for WVU. And after meeting Mrs. Hamby, I wasn't sure if the, the if the, the the digits were inverted because she said 91, but I'm not sure if she meant 91 or 19. So. <laughs> So it's so good to be in your presence. Yes. <laughs> I see a couple of friends that, that I have here. I see the, uh, um, the, the head of the Bluefield alumni, Ms. Deidre uh, Guyton. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Reverend Collins, thank you for the opportunity uh, to come and, and to share with you. And of course, uh, each of you on this, this day that you would come out in commemoration of the life and the legacy of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, these are interesting and challenging times. I'm glad somebody said amen. <laughs> because I thought, if you didn't say amen, I thought maybe it was just me. But these are challenging, challenging times. And so when in the midst of challenging times, I think it's important for us to make sure that we have these type of celebrations because we're better than we are right now. We can be better than we are. But the only way that we're gonna be better than we are is to remember how we have been led in the past. And so it will be easy for us to have some angst about what is going on right now. But I believe, and I can say this from a social standpoint, by having someone such as Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King to lead us. And I can say that on the strength of my, of my ministry, that God 
is still in control. And because he is in control, I believe that tomorrow can be better than today. But it's not enough for us to just sing the songs and pray the prayers. We have work to do. And when it's dark, when it's dark, when it is difficult, that is when the people of goodwill, that is when the people of, of love, that's when the people of joy, that's when the people of, who believe in civil rights, when it's dark, that's when we have to let our light shine. And I'd like to suggest to you we need to do some shining right now. So there's just there as we we're here we're just among friends I'm just gonna talk for a little bit as a diversity professional over the past uh, many years and really to deal it to deal in this area throughout my life it has really been my pleasure to represent West Virginia the state uh, throughout the country you know from West Virginia many times that that people just don't understand who we are and I've been in many situations where where when, when I tell them about the true richness of West Virginia, when I tell them about who we really are, when I tell them who we've been, when I tell them that, that so often West Virginia, rather than being the tail, has been the head in so many important things, they look at me like I'm crazy because they just don't believe it. And it's because that, that, that in, at, in humanity we deal with narratives. And once a narrative has been told about you, it is very difficult to reverse that narrative. You guys, you know, you're in West Virginia, you know the narrative that we have. In West Virginia, many people believe that we don't have education in West Virginia. Many people believe that we have uh, little educational opportunities in West Virginia. Many people believe that we're all poor and destitute and living in shacks. Uh, many people believe that we don't have dentists. You know, that's the kind of stuff that they say about us. And that's how you marginalize a people. But I'm here to tell you that, that West Virginia, I am proud to be from Institute West Virginia. I thought at least Joy would say all right, because she's, she's from Institute too. But as West Virginians, we have a legacy that we can stand upon. Uh, for instance, it's only in West Virginia that you could have a group called Bicycle. And there's only two people, and it sounds like there's 20 people over there. That's how we do in West Virginia. Can you say amen? amen. I wanted to slip that in, by the way, because I appreciate your, 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 your musicianship. And so, and so I've had an opportunity uh, representing West Virginia to really tell a little bit of the true West Virginia story. I hadn't really planned to go here, but I think it's, it's incumbent upon us to talk about it. Because one of the things that people don't understand about West Virginia is that West Virginia has a strong diversity past. So many of the things in America, we started it right here in West Virginia. So in virtually every subject, West Virginia has been on the forefront. Let me give you an example in terms of the uplift of people of color. When you talk about educational attainment, you have, to, you have to go no farther than to look at our past. Uh, there was a man by the name of Booker T. Washington who grew up in the, uh, the, 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 the area in, in right outside of West Virginia, Malden, West Virginia. Booker T. Washington, that, 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 that wonderful lion, that leader at the turn of the 20th century was a man beyond peer. Few people understand he's from West Virginia. 
when you when you when you when you celebrate Black History Month. Few people understand that Black History Month was started as Black History Week. It was started by the man, by, man by the name of Dr. Carter G. Woodson. And Dr. Carter G. Woodson's family moved from Virginia to Huntington, West Virginia, in order to, for him to be able to go to high school. Because in West Virginia, we were educating African Americans long, much before other states were. And so li people literally moved into this area to matriculate for education when you think of when you think of of of, of, of colleges uh, historical black colleges west virginia was at the forefront and actually one of the first colleges for people of color was store college in jefferson county west virginia and it was done in a way that was done it was education for all people store college but in west virginia this little state that has never had more than two million people West Virginia was at the forefront of the education for people of color. Because you not only had Store College, but you also had the great West Virginia State College. And I know what y'all waiting on. There was another college in West Virginia. The great Bluefield State College. Somebody else say amen. When I think about this great institution that we are that we are now in, when I think about the first president, he was actually a principal, Hamilton Hatter. He was a Renaissance man in the in the in the 19th century. Ran for the state legislature in 1892. He was an inventor. He invented a way to harvest corn. He was a man. He was a scientist, but he was also a social scientist that brought this great institution. To prominent somebody ought to say man. Amen. But the world doesn't understand that, that right here in West Virginia, right here in Bluefield, West Virginia, that we had a wonderful man by the name of Hamilton Hatter. We had Robert P. Sims and Henry Dickerson, the two presidents that followed him, that were that worked to build this institution at a time when it seemed as though that that, that uh, governments were not investing in schools. And so by saying that, I think it's important that this institution, and I'll say this here and I'll say this anywhere, it's important that this institution be fully funded by the West Virginia legislature. But it's not enough for us in these situations to just talk about it. There needs to be calls made to the West Virginia legislature. There needs to be advocacy from this community in order to save this institution. Because if you don't do it, there are forces out there that will sift away the money, sift away the funds. And I believe that the, that the future of this city, the future of Southern West Virginia, hinges upon having a strong Bluefield State College. But in all areas, West Virginia has been in, in the forefront in terms of, of, of opportunities for people of color. Uh, my, my, my colleague, uh, Mary Beth, your honor, said, uh, talked about the Honorable Frank Cleckley. And I believe that Frank Cleckley was not only a, among the best in West Virginia over the years, I think he was the best nationally, right out of West Virginia. <laughs> Grew up in Huntington, 
uh, went to school in Indiana, went to Harvard, but he came back. And he came back. And he ended up being on the, the, uh, on the West Virginia Supreme Court. He was an uh, intellect above peer. But you know, it wasn't just Frank Cleckley. We had attorney Herbert Henderson, who was one of the national attorneys for the NAACP. He was a, the general counsel for the NAACP. I heard somebody say yes back then. That's one of our own. We now have the Honorable Booker T. Stevens down in McDowell County right now. And his wife, the Honorable Gloria Stevens. So you see, this, the Southern West Virginia, there is something that, 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 that's in these waters, Judge. And we have produced greatness over the years. Reverend, when you think about from the international standpoint, Reverend Dr. Leon Sullivan. And I had an opportunity to work for him and to actually know him. And, and, and many people know him just in limited quantities. I was talking to some young people. And I asked them, did you know who Leon Sullivan was? And they said, yeah, I know, I know. I said, who was he? He said, he's a street in Charleston. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, that's a start. <laughs> that, that's a start. But Reverend Dr. Sullivan was just a line of a man. He was actually, he actually had one of the nation's first mega churches. He had a church of about 5,000 in Philadelphia. They used to call him the Lion of Zion. It was Zion Baptist Church. But he was, he, 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 he was so involved with the uplift of people who needed to be uplifted that he started organizations, training organizations such as OIC of America, but he also had OIC International. He had OIC uh, Africa. He had IFISH, the International Fund for Education and Self-Help. He was a line of a person right out of West Virginia. But internationally, Dr. Sullivan was one of the most important figures in the fall of apartheid in South Africa. When Madiba, when Mandela was released from prison, you see a tall, light-skinned man standing to his left, and that's Reverend Dr. Sullivan. Uh, Madiba, Mandela said that the Westerner most responsible for the fall of apartheid was Reverend Dr. Leon Sullivan. Somebody ought to say amen. Right out of West Virginia, y'all. Now I could go on and on in terms of uh, religion right now. Uh, probably one of the most well-known uh, pastors in America is a man by the name of Bishop T.D. Jakes. You know T.D. Jakes? Right out of South Charleston, West Virginia. He has the Potter's House in, in, in Dallas, Texas. He has 30,000 members of his church. His church would be like the third largest city in West Virginia, to be quite <laughs> frank right now. But it's amazing that when you talk about people like Bishop Jakes and, 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 and Bishop Sherman Watkins and Bishop Staples, and when you see people on a national scale, that they all have an interest in West Virginia because they know of what West Virginia has done for them. And I think it is incumbent of us to start reaching back out to these national West Virginia figures because we need the help and we need the, 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 the camaraderie for the world to know that West Virginia produces giants. Can you say amen? amen. That was my introduction. <laughs> but today I would like to talk to you about the times in which we are living. You know, we are living in difficult and perilous times, particularly for the movement of equality. 
difficult and perilous, not so much that we haven't seen it before, but it was difficult and perilous because we never thought that we would see it again. Uh, you know, uh, until recently, our, our trek for equality was, 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 was on a slow but steady upward trajectory. Our social and our economic uh, well-being was moving in a way. And here we are some 50 years after the assassination of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. And I can only imagine in my mind how, how he would deal with the rhetoric that we are seeing on a national level. What would Dr. King say now if he were to be here? And to see how we are not only just turning our backs on people who need it, but we're actually castigating people based upon who they are and who they love. That's not the best of who America is. I don't care, and I don't care, I know I stepped on my applause line, I don't, I don't care what your religious beliefs are. No matter what, the best of America is when we accept everybody in their humanity. Now, I am not uh, uh, naive. I know it was not that we felt that we had arrived at the promised land after, but it seemed like after Dr. King's speech, right before he died, you remember his mountaintop experience speech, where he said, you know, I may not get there with you, but I believe that we are crossing over uh, to the promised land. And that w w we saw it as a promise that we were always working toward and we felt that despite the barriers and the obstacles, the climb was steady if not smooth, fruitful if not fair, providential if not always prosperous. But somehow we believe that the prayers of our predecessors were, sold, were slowly coming to fruition in America. Oh, we knew there were, there were inequities such as the prison industrial complex where thousands and thousands of African Americans are being imprisoned and stigmatized by an often unjust system. We understand that, and, and, and as I look, even as we talk about prison reform now, it is amazing to me that what has happened just over the past few years, that we are, we are talking about the decriminalization of marijuana. And I look back and I see the carnage that has been made as we, as we criminalize that, now we're talking about that's the new growth industry. I don't know, I know I'm in the wrong place to say it, but the devil is alive. <laughs> Somehow we have to go back and retrieve all of those whose lives have been challenged and changed, whose lives carry with them the mark of felonies for doing things that will now be not against the law. We have work to do. Can you say amen? Oh, we knew that there were economics of racism that had been institutionalized into the system. We knew that affirmative action many times did everything but the right thing. And, and many times that at the end of the day, rather than affirmative action being an uplifted, actually inured better for the ruling class. We understood that. We watched we watch programs that were designed for uplift being twisted and turned around on its head to hurt rather than help. We even refused to be discouraged when our talented 10th 
who really, uh, from the boys, said that, that would lift the rest of the race up. Sometimes the talented tenth, they got their stuff and they left us. And they didn't look back and they didn't push for us. But even though that it was not always fair, we were not discouraged because we felt like tomorrow was going to be better. We were even not completely discouraged when we watched the evangelical church uh, allow itself to be used as a tool of marginalization. Uh, when the evangelical church refused, such as what Dr. Martin Luther King wrote in his letter from a Birmingham jail. If you ever get a chance to read that, I think that is probably one of the greatest works of the 20th century, where he, where he, where he said to the pastors, where he said to the evangelical church, you cannot slow down the progress of people so that you can be comfortable. Yeah. He went on to say that, that sometimes people want to shout peace, peace. But he said you have to understand that there are two kinds of peace. There's a negative peace, which is the absence of tension. But there is a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. Somebody ought to say amen. And we want to push, we want to push for positive peace where there is justice in our land. Uh, it's interesting, though, that our current angst actually started at the height of what we thought was the symbol of our arrival. That was the election of Barack Hussein Obama. You know, the night of the election, and it's one of those moments that I'm sure everybody remembers where you were that we cried and we, you know, and we celebrated and we, I remember my mother who, who just passed away uh, three years ago, four years ago, at the age of 102 years old. Amen, amen. And I remember calling her, no, let me take, you had to know my mother. I remember her calling me. It was after midnight. And she was watching television. She called, she said, David, I just never thought I'd see it. And it brings tears to my eyes now that that level of hopefulness that we had then, that tomorrow, that finally, we knew it wasn't over. But we knew that we had crossed a barrier that many of us thought would never be uh, crossed. And so uh, along with about two million of my closest friends, we all went to the inauguration. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I heard somebody saying it was cold. Yeah, it was very cold. It, it was very cold. It was so cold that I don't share the pictures of me that day. I was so wrapped up, I looked like a mummy. But we celebrated. And we thought, okay, now, 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 this whole idea of America living up to the dictates of its conscience, it now was there. Unfortunately, the fissures were almost immediate. First, a real estate developer in New York with a long line of atrocities against people of color financed the birther movement to try and prove without foundation that our new black president was not born in America. Y'all remember? And then during the first State of the Union address, uh, Representative Joe Wilson from the 2nd Congressional District in South Carolina broke all precedent and decorum and shouted at this young new president, you lie. Yeah. 
something that had never been done before. Which was actually the beginning of eight years of brushback and, and marginalization. And, 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 and while the success of this young political genius were incalculable, the saving of the American economy, the preservation of the auto industry, the provisions of health care for those most in need, the triumph over our enemies, the strategies to disarm nuclear powers, we saw a pushback. Now, it's interesting to me, though, that during those eight years, we remained hopeful because our president was so hopeful. No matter what they said about him, he just was the same old guy. He was just a, no matter what, he said, no matter what, he and his, his, his lovely and, and accomplished life partner, Michelle, and those two beautiful Nubian princes, Malay and Chasha, no matter what, that was the first family that we, that, that we were all proud of. You could call him a name, he wouldn't call your name back. You could talk about him, and he'd run up the steps to Air Force One. So, 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 so we took the blows because we realized that progress always comes with some sacrifice. But unfortunately, we, we, we started to realize that so-called Christian American wasn't always living by the tenements of Christianity. Yet this, during this time, we continue to hope and we continue to move forward. Over the past two years, we have seen the national dialogue become, become increasingly intolerant and distanced. There has been a resurgence of overt racism and nullification. Whatever your political beliefs or political affiliations may be, I'm not here talking politics, I'm talking the reality of how we are in difficult times. We cannot long continue on this present track or we will come apart at the seams. And so in the midst of this challenge, in the midst of disillusionment, in the midst of wondering where do we go from here, I would suggest, suggest to you that we need to figure out a way to keep hope alive. But in the midst of our disillusionment, I am reminded of how disillusioned Dr. King was at the time of his death. In 1967, April 4th, Dr. Martin Luther King stood up and came out against the war in Vietnam. And when he came out against the war in Vietnam, virtually all of his support, foundationally, institutionally, politically, left him. And so it's interesting to me that when we celebrate Dr. King's uh, life, we fail to realize that Dr. King died in disillusionment. Uh, the last year of his life, and there's a wonderful documentary out, it's called King in the Wilderness, that's available now. That last year of his life, the, the monies for his organizations dried up. Uh, Lyndon Johnson, who had been such a big help to the, to the movement, withdrew his support because he felt like that he was being uh, denied support by Dr. King. 
Dr. King, during that last year of his life, was on no one's list of top ten most admired people. But he stood. And in the midst of his disillusionment, I think he gives us some keys as to how we can operate at a time of disillusionment. Y'all with me? I think it is important for us to look at the principles that he worked upon in order so us in the difficult time that we are, how we can move together and not be disillusioned. We can best honor Dr. King by embracing the principles that informed his leadership. The missing link in today's conversation and the missing link in our lack of civility is not only the principle of love, but also the language of love. You know, imagine how, how, much, how much better our, our national discourse would be if we would incorporate the principles of the soul force of love. You see, that was the principles that Dr. King operated off of. And so I would like to just, in my, before I take my seat, in these, that's my first closing, by the way, I get three. <laughs> I would just like for us to discuss, just for, just for a few moments, what are these principles of, 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 of soul force of love, he called it. He took it from Mahatma Gandhi. And let's, let's, let's kind of examine them one by one to see how we can perhaps start to operate from those principles. The first principle was harbor no anger. Okay, we failed that one. We are an angry nation. Everyone is angry. It is to the point now that that, that anger has been so much a part of our DNA, we can't even have discussions without someone being angry. It has gotten so bad that I have to limit some of my public uh, appearances. I used to go on Hoppy Kershaw quite often, and we, we had 20 years of banter back and forth. But over the last couple of years, things changed. Uh, the last time, one of the last times, I've been on a few times since then, since then. But one of the last time was after the uh, debacle at Ferguson. And I made the statement that we are better than, 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 than this. That this idea of police brutality needs to be handled. And believe it or not, I thought that was pretty mild, right? But the callers who called in, it was just unbelievable. They called in and said, why would you have this guy on your show? Why would you allow him to articulate that? Why would he be against police officers? Which I'm not. But we're so angry, you see, that we don't even want to hear a counter. I was telling the, the judge, three weeks after that appearance, I turned on Hoppy's show and somebody called in and said, you know that Fryson? I was thinking, that was three weeks ago. And so somehow, through the force of love, we have to harbor no anger. Can you say amen? There is a difference in anger and righteous indignation. And I'm not suggesting that we should not have the full gambit of our feelings. There's no one that could see the way that our immigrant community is being challenged right there. There's no way that we can see the rhetoric that's coming from on high and not be indignant 
But that is different than anger because what anger will do will blind you. And we need to be able to have a vision that is clear. The second principle that he had was to suffer the anger of the opponent. And I have to say, I fail that one. Because, you know, you get mad at me, I'll get mad at you, right? You, you push at me, I'll push at you. But at the end, that goes almost back to the old law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And Dr. King says that when you buy that out, you're going to have a whole bunch of people who are blind and toothless. And so it's time for us to it's time for us to start understanding and really try to understand what other people are saying, even if you don't disagree, even if you don't agree with it. There are times when people I just don't understand the fear that is out there, but I need to listen to the fear, even if it's the fear for immigrants. I need to listen to that so I can respond. Uh, Covey says in the Seven Habits of highly effective people, seek first to understand and then to be understood. If we could just incorporate that principle, where we would start listening, truly listening to people that are diametrically opposed to our position before we start to state our position. I've noticed in, in, in you know, between uh, CNN and MSNBC and Fox uh, uh, television, you notice nobody listens. Everybody talks. A lot of times at the same time. We need to start listening even to the hurt and to the pain of those that we don't agree with. Thirdly, that we never retaliate to assaults and punishment. The next one is one that I, I think that we need to, to consider even from our, our leaders. Never curse or swear. never thought that I would live to see the day where in a sermon I could not say the words that were coming out of our president's mouth. I just never thought, and again, I'm not being political, I'm just structurally, I just never thought, because we always had a, 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 a modicum, a level where we didn't go beyond, and we didn't call people SOBs and all this kind of stuff. That has to stop. Somebody ought to say amen. amen. But the answer to it is not to meet it with the same kind of rhetoric. The soul force of love means I don't care what you say to and about me, I'm going to love you with the love of God. Now that's, that's a challenge, y'all. That's a, that's a challenge. And if it wasn't a challenge, I, I wouldn't be telling you about it. Because, you know, we all grew up. You throw a rock at me, I'm going to throw a boulder at you. But we've got to stop. We have to stop. And, and I believe that it needs to start with me. And I believe that it needs to start with you. That the level of our rhetoric needs to be one that is filled with the yoke of kindness and sincerity and yes love the next one that he had was do not insult the opponent do not trade barbs or insults 
The next one of this Santiago is if anyone attempts to insult or assault your opponent, defend your opponent non-validly, even with your life. The next one was avoid occasions that may give rise to communal quarrels. The next one was do not take part in processions that would wound the religious sensibility of any community. And I think those are wonderful principles that Dr. Martin Luther King has left for us. And we would be remiss if we just came together in honor of Dr. King and talk about what a great life he led and not try to accentuate the positive in our own lives. And so as we leave this place, we need to leave this place with the understanding that tomorrow can be better, but it only will be better if we make it better. It will only... It will only show love if we show love. It will only show compassion if we show compassion. And perhaps right here, right now, in the Student Union of Bluefield State College, perhaps we can start the movement that we can say to one another, and as I leave this place, I will leave this place with a heart that is filled with love, not just to the people that agree with me, but to the people who are diametrically opposed, to the people who stand against what I stand for. It is important because I believe that when we have that kind of soul force, when we have that kind of love, that things will get better. Let me leave you with two quotes. The first quote comes from Martin Luther King's last book. It's called, Where Do We Go From Here? And I quote, Dr. King says, I must confess, my friends, that the road ahead will not always be smooth. There will still be rocky places of frustrations and meandering points of bewilderment. Bewilderment. There will be inevitable setbacks here and there. There will be those moments when the buoyancy of hope will be transformed into the fatigue of despair. Our dreams will sometimes be shattered and our urethral hopes blasted. Difficult and painful as it is, we must walk on in the days ahead with an audacious faith in the future. And as we continued our chartered course, we may gain consolation in the words so nobly left by the, that great black bard, who was also a great fighter of yesterday, James Weldon Johnson, when he says, stony the road we trod, bitter the chastening rod, felt in the days when hope unborn had died. Yet with a steady beat have not our weary feet come to the place for which our fathers sighed. Out from the gloomy past, till now we stand at last, where the bright gleam of our bright star is cast. Let this affirmation be our ringing cry. It will give us the courage to face the uncertainty of the future. With words like that, let us leave this place with a hope and understanding that the greatest need of the world is the need of us. There was a young lady at the turn of the 20th century. And at a time of difficulty and turmoil, she wrote these words. She said, the greatest need of the world is the need of men and women. 
men and women who will not be bought or sold, men and women who are as true to principle as the needle to the pole, men and women who in their innermost hearts are true and honest and kind, men and women who will stand for the right though the heavens fall. But then she went on to say, but the development of character is not by divine providence, nor is it by accident. The development of a, of a noble character is a subjection of self to the uplifting of our fellow man. A subjection of me to the uplifting of my fellow man. And when all is said and done, when all is said and done, we will turn this country around by the love that we show. I thank you for